Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today would normally be a tech news day for Thursday, May 13th, 2021. But I thought I'd do something a little different. This episode will be shorter than a normal Tech Stuff episode, but it does tie into something that was in the news this week, and so it's more like a commentary and point of view on the news. And earlier this week, the head of finance at game developer and publisher Ubisoft uh, said on a call with investors that producing three to four premium AAA game titles per year is, quote, no longer a proper indication of our value creation dynamics, end quote. Um, that's not easy to parse language, ain't it? I mean, it's got all sorts of corporate speak in there, but what's actually being said here is that the old classic model where a company produces a premium title and then relies exclusively on sales of that title is more or less a thing of the past. And it's important we walk through this. Now, I did some episodes about the history of Ubisoft uh, last year, I think. And this is kind of an addendum to that in a way, because it's a, a look at how the company is viewing its future. Uh, I should also point out that a lot of folks have actually covered this story pretty thoroughly. Alana Pierce, who works at Sony Santa Monica, did a fantastic breakdown explanation of what's going on from an industry perspective. I highly recommend you go to YouTube and check out her video. It's titled, Let's Talk About Ubisoft Going Free Play. Uh, I'm going to be going over some of the same ground that she does, but she's super good at this. And if you're not familiar with her work, you should check it out. She does all sorts of stuff um, with her channel, uh, mostly to kind of relate to the, the video games industry, not exclusively, but frequently. And she's got some really good insight on this, um, having worked both as a games journalist and now working to write video games. So let's consider for a moment the business of making video and computer games because it has changed dramatically. And keep in mind, this is still a relatively young industry. So 40 years ago, okay, maybe not that young, Man, I'm old. Anyway, 40 years ago, it wasn't unusual for a single person to make a game. That person would program the game from start to finish. They'd design everything. But then getting that game out so that people can, you know, buy a copy was still a big hurdle. There was no internet that the average person could access back in those days. So some early programmers like, say, Richard Garriott, who was the creator of the Ultima series, they got their start making games and copying their code to diskettes, you know, like five and a quarter inch disks, and then packaging those up in Ziploc bags with maybe a page of instructions. And they would then go to their local hobby stores, which would sell them for, you know, X amount of money per copy. You would even find bulletin boards where these bags would just be hanging from a thumbtack and you could take one down and go up to the cash register and 
purchase a, a computer game this way. But obviously, that approach nets you a very limited number of customers. It's not scalable. It's not like you could do this nationwide. You could maybe do three or four hobby stores in your general area. Then you're kind of done. But then you've got your video game publishers. These are companies that, at least in the old days, would form relationships with various retailers. And the publishers would pay developers for a game title. Uh, sometimes you would have a developer and a publisher be the same entity, but a lot of times you're talking about, you know, one group is developing the games and then the publishers are taking it from there. Then the publishers would distribute that game title to various retail establishments. So the publishers would get money from retailers who turned around and then sold copies of the game for a profit. So everyone along this chain got paid. The retail stores were getting paid by the customers. The publisher was being paid by the retail stores and the developer was being paid by the, the publisher. So you had to cover your costs, obviously, every step of this chain, right? The developer needed to make enough money to cover the time and effort that went into creating the game. The publisher needed to make the money back that was sent to the developer, and the retailer needed to make up the money that was spent on getting inventory. These relationships came in a variety of forms and agreements. Uh, sometimes there were royalties involved, which was great news for the developer. Uh, it, with royalties, if the title sold really well, the developer would benefit from that with royalty payments. But this wasn't a guarantee, especially in the old days of game design. One thing that was pretty darn firm, however, was that the purchase of a game was the end of the transaction. So if I walked into a computer store and I purchased a copy of Ultima, well, that was one unit sold and the transaction pretty much marked the end of that, right? I bought my copy, I handed over my cash, done. So you generate revenue at the point of sale and that's it. Flash forward a few years and then you get some new models that start to pop up. One was expansion packs. So companies would create expansions to previous titles that already had an established fan base. So if someone makes a game and it sells really well, often that means that the players are really eager to get more of whatever it was that they liked. So you can create additional material. And expansion packs frequently leaned heavily on using the assets that already existed for the original title, which meant that the developers didn't have to reinvent everything. They didn't have to build a game from the ground up. They could repurpose assets for this new content. That streamlined the development cycle and it brought development costs down. And now companies could continue to make money off of a specific title. Though this approach does require that the developer put some resources into making the expansion. And, uh, you know, it's not as simple as just making more money off the same thing you sold. You have to convince people, hey, this expansion pack is going to give you more of whatever it was you enjoyed of the original game. A little bit later, you also saw an approach called shareware, which was incredibly clever. Now, typically, a shareware title would give players access to a part of a game, but not the full title. So, for example, in a first-person shooter game, it might include the first third of the game for free. And you could get a copy of this. Back in the old days, it was still on diskette. And you could install the game on your computer and play right up to the point where the, you know, that shareware part ends. And upon reaching the end of the free section, 
you would encounter a message that would encourage you to purchase the full game, you know, maybe through mail order or whatever. And then the developer would send you the full game on disc and you could play it. And a lot of games were distributed this way, like Wolfenstein 3D. Brilliant approach, because what Wolfenstein 3D did was it encouraged people to make copies of that shareware version and to give those copies out to their friends. You, you, you know, you had players doing the marketing for the company. They were distributing this shareware version of the game and every single shareware version ended with that message saying, Hey, I hope you enjoyed this. If you want the full game, you know, here's how you can buy it. And so players were effectively doing a lot of the marketing and distributing for the company at the ground level. It was an effective way to get a game awareness out there, and several titles found success through that method. By this time, games were getting more sophisticated, and now you usually had teams working on a title, uh, with people, you know, specializing in particular skills like art or music or programming, and the costs of developing a game were going up because you had more folks spending more time putting together each title. But generally speaking, you still had that same revenue model where someone would purchase a title, that was that. That was the end of the transaction. Then we get up to the era of downloadable content, or DLC. Games that have DLC allow you to augment an existing title by downloading additional content. And DLC can come in lots of different forms, uh, some of which provide, at least arguably, more value than others. So you might offer up additional levels or experiences within a game as DLC. Or you might give players the chance to use special items in a game, like weapons or vehicles, but only if you get the DLC. There's no way to get them through regular gameplay. Or you might allow players to play through the same game, but as a totally different character. So in some cases, it might just be as simple as subbing one character model out for another, but in others, it might involve shifting the entire storyline so it actually reflects the perspective of this other character and it creates an all-new game using the same basic mechanics. Some DLC was purely cosmetic and it gives players a chance to make a game look different in some way, either their player character or level design or whatever it might be. DLC comes in all shapes, sizes, flavors, and price points. You've got some DLC that ends up being practically as expensive as a full game. You have other DLC that it's a microtransaction. You're just paying a small amount of money for some tiny element of that game. And there have been some pretty incredible examples. Occasionally you get DLC that eclipses the popularity of the original title. But there are also examples of really, really bad DLC, and they're hard to frame as anything other than a cash grab and a waste of money for the player. DLC really opened up a new revenue stream for video game developers and publishers. Now companies could continue to offer additional content and features to an existing game and charge players to access it. They could keep making money off of a title after they sold it. So rather than having a person just plunk down their 50 or 60 or today 70 bucks to purchase a title and then walk away forever, they could see that that person plunked down the cash 
to purchase the title, and then occasionally offer up some more cash when they saw some DLC they wanted to own, or a microtransaction that they didn't mind paying for. And that's when we get to loot crates. Uh, loot crates. Now, if you're not familiar with loot crates in games, these are things that typically players can earn through in-game activities, but it can take a lot of time for them to earn them that way, or they can earn them very quickly by purchasing them with real-world money. And again, this tends to be in the microtransaction range. The loot crate represents the potential to unlock something interesting in the game. Uh, it might be an outfit or some other cosmetic effect. Those are the types of loot crates that, in my experience, are generally viewed as being the least offensive because if you don't care about aesthetics, then you don't feel pressured to engage in it. But for other players who just really like making the look of their character unique, or at least unusual, then it's really appealing. Some games, however, will include items and loot crates that have an actual in-game effect, like better weapons or other types of items, and that tends to rub players the wrong way. It gets into a pay-to-win kind of classification. Now, there's no guarantee with a loot crate that you're going to get anything you want when you open it. It might be something that you don't want. It might be a copy of something you already have. The distribution of items is, at least in theory, randomized, with rarer items having a lower percentage chance of spawning when you open the loot crate. Um, though you don't necessarily have a guarantee that this is all random anyway, but in theory it's randomized and it is uh, the, the chances of you getting any particular item are based upon some percentage of, uh, that reflects how rare or common that item is within the game. Um, some real-world regions have classified the loot crate system as being akin to gambling because, again, you don't know what you're going to get. There's a chance you'll get something really rare in the game. There's a chance you'll get something incredibly common. And thus, these regions have kind of cracked down on the practice of loot crates. And there's definitely something to be said for that psychological payoff that you get when you open a loot crate and you get something neat inside it. That does tend to encourage people to make more purchases. And that obviously can get really harmful if left unchecked. It can feed into sort of an addictive cycle. Then we get to the free-to-play model. With free-to-play games, players get access to the base game for free, as the name implies. But then the game typically offers lots of ways that players can enhance their experience through making purchases somewhere inside the game. That can include unlocking new content, so maybe there's certain parts of the game that are inaccessible unless you pay for them. Uh, it might remove level caps so that you, know, you no longer are stuck at maxing out at a lower level. Uh, it might give you access to special equipment or cosmetic items. And there are games that do this really well, like games like Fortnite. Uh, the Battle Royale mode, which is arguably more famous than the original version of Fortnite, is free to play. And players can purchase stuff like character skins and emotes and dances and that kind of stuff. So all those viral memes you see of like Fortnite dances, well, those represent streams of revenue because if you're playing the game and you want to feel like you're part of the cool club, you're going to need to shell out some cash so that you're not just stuck with the default options that come standard with the game. 
All right, we've laid out the basics. I'm going to go into more detail, but before I do that, let's take a quick break. Okay, so free-to-play games are free-to-play, as the name implies, sure, but unlike a AAA title that's a one-and-done from a transaction point of view, these games typically have hundreds of different ways that people might spend money on it over time. And they tend to be titles that get long-term support. They encourage players to stick with playing that game indefinitely. So with a traditional AAA title, you would make a purchase, you would play through the game, maybe you'd play through it a couple of times, but then you would move on. You wouldn't just keep playing that same game over and over because there's a limited amount of content and entertainment value there, and eventually you would exhaust it. Um, For a lot of the traditional AAA titles, I mean. Now, a lot of these free-to-play titles aim to keep players active on them for years, if possible. So... What stuff like DLC and loot crates and free-to-play really did in the industry is start to shift the thinking and the perception around what games mean from the industry side, from the business side. Producers began to look at video games in terms of how much entertainment players were getting per dollar spent. Like, what's what's the value of entertainment of a game? And then they compared that to other forms of entertainment, like movies. And that, I think, is kind of apples to oranges. It's not a real fair comparison, but it is something that's happened. Uh, Alana Pierce, in her video that I mentioned earlier, uh, the one about let's talk about uh, Ubisoft going to free play, she points out a, a piece that was done at Activision that really shed light on this line of thinking. Uh, Let's take a movie as an example. So if we go by Statista, the average price for a movie ticket in the United States is $9.16, or at least that's what it was in 2020, which is news to me because here in Atlanta, it's much higher than that. The average price seems to be closer to around $15. Uh, In fact, I actually did a quick check before this podcast and found a ticket to Mortal Kombat, which would set me back $14.34. Plus, it would steal 110 minutes of my life away, and I would never get those back. <clears throat> I've seen Mortal Kombat. It wouldn't have been worth the $14.34. So, 110 minutes, that's a smidge under two hours. So you're looking at roughly $7 per hour of entertainment value if you're taking that perspective, that you're paying 7 bucks per hour for your entertainment. But now let's take a look at a AAA title video game. And since Ubisoft is the company that got us talking about this in the first place, let's use one of their recent titles with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. That game cost $59.99, or $60 when it first came out. According to PC Games to the nth power, the expected playthrough time for Assassin's Creed Valhalla is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 90 hours. So when you average that out, it comes down to somewhere between 67 cents to a dollar per hour of entertainment. So if you're looking at this as a quantity of entertainment per unit of currency perspective, movies are way more expensive per hour than AAA title games for the consumer. On the flip side, 
movies net studios way more money per hour of entertainment than video games. So if you're looking at it as a company that makes video games, you're left with the question of, well, how can we get more money per hour of entertainment? We're giving away hours of entertainment here. We should really rethink how we're going about generating revenue for games. We can't leave money on the table. We need to figure out a way to optimize the monetization of entertainment. Well, the free-to-play represents a way to get more money per player over the long run. Now, some players might never spend a dime on a free-to-play game, but others will end up spending way more money than they would if they were just purchasing a AAA title outright. Someone who might have balked at dropping 70 bucks on a game all at once could, over the course of their time playing a free-to-play game, spend twice as much as that, or more, once it's all said and done. It's just all of these transactions are on a much smaller scale, and then they add up. Plus, this approach can bring development costs way down. I mean, you still have to develop the base game. That is still a big commitment. But once that's done, any additional development can be done on top of that existing framework. Now, it might require some tweaks. So, for example, if you introduce new weapons or characters in a multiplayer shooter game like Overwatch, you might have to rebalance the game if the new character proves to be too powerful or not powerful enough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the characters who are already part of the roster. Now, this marks a shift of games as being, you know, distinct units of entertainment for purchase into becoming more of a service. There are many manifestations of games as a service. Uh, there are subscription plans. There's like the Xbox Game Pass, which for a monthly fee gives you access to a selection of games that you can play. You know, uh, you could argue you can play them for free, though you're not really play pay playing for free because you've got the subscription fee. Uh, then you have persistent online worlds like World of Warcraft, which, you know, traditionally had a subscription associated to it or with it rather, uh, or GTA Online, which has lots of different versions of microtransactions to get access to various types of content in the online world. And there are free-to-play games that have additional content available for purchase, and all of these are different variations of the same basic idea. Creating a game that allows publishers to continue to make money on an ongoing basis, rather than have a game launch, and then sell X number of units of that game, and then that game fades from consciousness, so you have to do it all over again with a new title. And this coincides with more players purchasing fewer titles, but spending more time in individual games. So it's not that people aren't playing games as much as they used to, it's rather that they're spending way more time playing specific games. So in some cases, this goes along with branding. So for example, there are Twitch streamers that I watch who are best known for playing one or two specific titles. Uh, Meg Turney is a Dead by Daylight fiend, and she scares me. Uh, Insim is a phasmophobia expert who can practically run through the toughest levels of that game with his eyes closed and still win. Joe Woodle is best known for his content around Seven Days to Die. And sure, for streamers, their brand often gets tied to specific titles, and that's a little different. But apparently, even for non-streamers, the trend is that folks are buying fewer titles, but spending more time playing each title. Anecdotally, 
I can say that that is true for me, but anecdotal evidence isn't really evidence. But here's my version. I've been playing a few games an awful lot. You know, I've been playing a lot of Stardew Valley because I got to get that completionist achievement. And it's, I didn't go about setting up my farm super efficiently. So it's taken me way more time than it should. I also spent a lot of time playing Hitman 3, which continues to release more specific content for that game and continues to be really interesting to play. Uh, I spent a lot of time playing the game Hades, which is a roguelike game that is really exceptionally well done and infuriating, but I love it. And we see a long-running trend in AAA titles of sprawl and epic epicness. So games like the Elder Scrolls series, they, they have so much content in these games that it might take you more than 100 hours to see it all. Uh, some of them have so much sprawl that I, as a player, tend to get worn out before I ever play through it, and I just never finish the game. Now, this is a personal issue for me. Like, I have trouble with side quests because I always want to complete all the side quests before I finish the story. And I get this this fear of missing out. If I continue the story, it means I might shut myself off from certain side quests. And I don't like that. So then I end up pursuing all the side quests and I never finish the story mission. And yeah, it's a I get it. It's a personal problem. Now, the free to play model depends on creating essentially open ended gaming experiences. The game can't end because if it did, then players might move on. And the whole value proposition from the corporate standpoint is that the game never ends. It encourages continued play. Now, some games work really well with this model, and they tend to be stuff like competitive shooters and battle royale games and that kind of stuff, because those games aren't so much about completing a story, but rather about competing against other players in various types of matches. There are lots of good games that fall into this category. They just don't tend to be the games that I prefer. Meanwhile, the financial numbers show that this trend is likely to continue and, in fact, accelerate. Uh, Jeff Keighley tweeted out that when it comes to EA's revenue, just 26% of that revenue came from selling premium titles, and the rest of the stuff came from things like mobile games and microtransactions and DLC. So nearly three-quarters of all of EA's revenue came not from selling big-ticket titles, but rather all this kind of additional stuff that's on the periphery of a big title. And developing video games is incredibly expensive. It takes a lot of time, and there are ways to make way more money for smaller investments of time and effort. So it's no surprise that Ubisoft is making a larger move toward that direction. Now, does this mean that the era of the self-contained single-player video game experience is coming to an end? Should we expect all game titles moving forward to be about this ongoing experience and, and more consistently an online multiplayer experience, one that encourages players to spend smaller amounts of money over time, but to continue to do so over the course of years. I feel like that's going to be a major focus for a lot of big publishers out there. That being said, we continue to see some incredible games made by smaller studios, and some of these games are exploring storytelling in really interesting ways. 
Some represent a smaller experience, uh, something that has a definitive ending and perhaps doesn't require 40 or more hours of play to get there. Personally, I'm finding those style of games really rewarding. I enjoy it when I get a chance to play them. It's refreshing to play something that isn't trying to coax me into another dozen hours or whatever. It's just a really compact, well-designed experience. I really think that those are awesome. And I think we're going to see a mixture of these approaches, with smaller studios kind of filling in the big gaps that are left by the larger companies. Ubisoft and Activision and EA are likely to prioritize games that have these ongoing transactions as part of their design. Maybe, in fact, the central part of their design. And I guess that's okay. I mean, I'm not super jazzed about it, but these tend to be games that I don't play all that frequently anyway, uh, with the exception of games like Hitman. I mean, I do play some of them, just I don't play all of them. And meanwhile, you've got other studios making experiences that aren't meant to be persistent ones that last indefinitely. That's okay, too. As for the whole free-to-play movement, if I, I don't know that it's going to bring more people in to try stuff out. It might. I mean, for me, it's not always the perception of the cost. To me, it's the perception of, am I going to really enjoy this, this experience? So for certain titles, like Assassin's Creed, it's heavily dependent for me on the context of where that game falls. Like, Assassin's Creed Black Flag was a pirate Assassin's Creed, and that was speaking my language. I love the the uh, the romantic image of piracy. Not the real one, <laughs> but the romanticized piracy image. I, I find that really compelling, and so I loved playing that game. But there are other titles in the Assassin's Creed franchise that just, you know, I didn't have any real interest in, so I didn't try them. I don't think that making those free will necessarily encourage me to try them out. Uh, I think it just has to appeal to me first, and whether or not it's free or I have to pay for it uh, is kind of beside the point. However, I also acknowledge I'm in a very privileged position where I can generally afford to play these kinds of games. And for other people, who might not have that kind of privilege, this could be great. Like, they get a chance to try out games that they might really enjoy. Uh, they might not be able to access all the different content of those games, which is kind of a bummer, but they'd at least get a chance to play the games. So that's kind of cool. I'm curious what you think. Um, for those gamers out there, shout out to me over on Twitter. TechStuffHSW is the handle. And uh, let me know, do you think the free-to-play microtransaction approach, is that okay? Is it ruining games? Uh, do you like it? Do you hate it? Are there types of games that you really enjoy? Are there some that don't really exist anymore? Uh, thanks to independent game studios, I think that a lot of the styles I really enjoy still get produced. Uh, depends on the studio. Uh, they can be of you know, varying quality, but I, I get inspired by some of the stuff I see, especially the weird stuff I see out of independent studios. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Uh, usually I would just do a tech news episode straight up, but this particular item really hit me and I thought it would be great to have more of a, an opportunity for me to get on a soapbox and talk about games and monetization and revenue and 
how, how this business of making games is in fact a business. And so we have to admit that, you know, we have to acknowledge that and not just say that this is something about, you know, creating entertainment for any altruistic purposes or whatever. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you all think. So let me know. And we will be back next week with more episodes of tech stuff, including our usual news episodes. And with that, I'm out of here. Y'all take care and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 